0: You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Those of you uh, who were here last week know that we're in a four-week series on the Book of Esther, and so we're going to d- dive a little deeper into that uh, today, and uh, spend a few minutes uh, l- looking at uh, another um, period in that in that story. Before we get to that, though, how many of you have you ever been in a group of people? And then someone starts uh, a conversation, and they're bad-mouthing someone else, someone who's not in the group. But they're, you know, you know, whether you're at school, you know, or at work, or if you're at school, you're at the, you know, the, the table, and someone's talking about a teacher or another kid or something, and, and all, it's not long before everyone just kind of piles on. And it's just, they're just ripping this person to shreds. But then somebody in the group just says, yeah, I don't know, I kind of like them. You know, and they'll share something about them that's positive. I I love watching the group dynamics because instantly the conversation stops. And sometimes, you know, another person will say, "Yeah, you're right," and I, and you literally see the conversation take a complete 180 and go in the opposite direction simply because one person said something contrary to what the other group was talking about. I I just find that group dynamic interesting. Um, Or have you ever observed a sports team, sometimes, especially football, we're in football season, and uh, a team is getting beat soundly on the field, just getting beat badly, and the running back gets the ball and he's running and just refuses to get tackled. You know, one person bounces off them, another person. And before they're, they're dragging three people with them, you know, down the field, it just refused to go down. And the other teammates look at this person's behavior, and it changes the whole momentum of the game because one person refused to accept the status quo and say, I'm not going to go down like this, we're going to change this game. And because one person decided to behave a little differently, the whole team changed their behavior and the whole momentum of the game shifted. It's just amazing to me what can happen when one person decides the status quo is no longer acceptable. We've got to make a change. Something's got to be different. The evil injustice of segregation began to unravel when a diminutive woman named Rosa Parks decided, I'm not going to sit in the back of the bus anymore. One person, and obviously in the history there was many more people, but that was one person who decided enough's enough. And things began to happen because of that. Even with all the examples to the contrary, it's easy to underestimate the significance that one individual can have. We know of all these stories. What I've shared with you is nothing new. You've got these stories in your own life and experience, but yet we still tend to underestimate what one person can do in a group, in a team environment, in a local community, even in our nation. It's ironic, though, it's the same thing in the Bible. We see the same thing where God constantly or consistently, time and again, use individual men and women to accomplish his purposes. These men and women were never perfect people. They were never the ideal selections. In fact, when you did have an ideal selection, they usually didn't go very well. These were faulty people, frail people, but they were willing people. So, as I mentioned we 're in the book of Esther, and last week, we looked at a few different things, kind of a, a summary of it. We, we learned that the Jewish people have been in exile, so they 're not in the country of israel they 're living actually this story of Esther takes place in Persia, which is modern day Iran so they 're not they 're a long way from home, but now we 're generations removed, so this is all they know they 've never known what it was like to live in Israel, but they 're Jewish in their their worldview, in their practices, in their religion. And there's four primary people in this story. We've got King Xerxes, who the author of the story portrays him <clears throat> as this indecisive partier. He's just manipulated by other people and just likes to have, actually in the text there, it's a 180-day party. Um, so six months of just one long party. We, also, we know the other, another character in the story is Mordecai who is the righteous, noble Jewish man. And then we see Esther, who is the beautiful cousin of Mordecai, who becomes the queen to Xerxes. And then we have Haman, who's the vain, prideful, evil or ego-driven villain in the story. Now, the story picks up then where it talks about where Haman has high rank in the government. He's a high official, very prominent, and Xerxes actually orders everyone to give him honor when he goes by. Mordecai, we're not really told in the passage, but Mordecai refuses to do that. He says, I'm not going to acknowledge him, and so everyone else is kneeling down when he goes by, and Mordecai didn't. He would just turn around and walk away, and this really bothered Haman, to the point where not only did he want to just get Mordecai, he wanted to kill him. And not that he didn't want to just kill him, he wanted to wipe out his entire Jewish race. So he manipulated the king to accepting this edict where on a day, 11 months in the future, one single day, everyone was to kill. In the 127 provinces that were then part of Persia, on that one day, every person was to kill a Jew, and take all of their assets and belongings as their own. So that was the national policy that had been set up. So that's where we ended last week. That's what was happening. So we're going to pick up now in chapter 4 of Esther. And we're going to read together. Or actually, we're not going to read together. You can follow along. That would take forever if we're going to read it together. But... So here we go. We're picking up. Now when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people." Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Mordecai's words were reported to Mordecai, or when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, "Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if any for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but you have come to a royal position for such a time as this?" The Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And Father, as we uh, dig a little deeper into this uh, passage and what was going on here, I pray you'll give us understanding. And Father, that we'll be able to uh, get a better sense of your activity, not just in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of the time, but even today, what that looks like for us. So Lord, I just ask again for your blessing and favor. In Jesus' name, amen. So if this was a movie, there are three scenes or if this was a play, this would be three scenes, three acts in this particular drama, this particular section. One is that it's the reaction of Mordecai to the edict when he hears about that. Two is Esther's investigation of Mordecai's behavior. And then three is the exchange uh, between Mordecai and Esther for what we're going to do about it. So in the first act, you see Mordecai's reaction. Um, you know, It says, when he learned of all that had been done. Um, that is significant because what, what it's telling us here is that Mordecai didn't just like see this bill posted on a post somewhere. Because remember, Mordecai was the one who'd heard in the previous chapter of an, of an assassination attempt on the king and notified Esther to tell the king that literally saved the king's life from an assassination attempt. Mordecai has some insiders inside the palace that are at very, very high level because he even knew the amount of the money that Haman had offered the king as payment to kill the Jews. So he's telling us here that he got word of this not because it had become public, but because he knew what was going on within the court at the time. This whole thing about wailing and sackcloth and ashes, we don't get that. I mean, just, it, it, it just doesn't fit our culture. There's just too much time um, as far as this behavior. Um, there's, it's a, too big of a cultural difference, you know, from, you know, five, six hundred years before Christ to now we're, you know, two thousand years afterwards. It's just, it's, we just don't get that. But here's what's going on here. It, it is an ancient, it's a cultural behavior. Sackcloth was this rough like goat fur or camel fur. Think of burlap. Think of wearing a burlap sack. It was meant to be uncomfortable. It was meant to be rough and irritating and you didn't like it. That was its intent. The ashes is just like it sounds. You literally take ashes from a campfire and you would pour it over yourself. You'd roll in it. You were just getting as dirty as you could get. For some of our kids, it sounds like a lot of fun. But... Um, so here's, here's what was going on, though. Here's why they did that. Back in the day, they didn't have, you know, social media to vent their opinions and thoughts. They, you know, which maybe we should do sackcloth and ashes. But so basically, if you wanted to, you know, no one had the megaphone to go out there and stand in the corner and, you know, tell everyone, you know, what your opinions or what you were thinking. In order to get people's attention, you had to do something kind of crazy. And this did that. But it, but it was more than just drama. When it's, when it's used in the scripture, it's more than just trying to you know, create drama and get attention. It was an outward sign of an inward condition. So you were demonstrating the internal angst and, and feeling, and, and it, was a, it was symbolic of deep mourning. Of Sometimes it was a symbolic of repentance. You were, you were sorry for what you'd done, and so it was an act of contrition before other humans or before God. It was an act of humility. We see it frequently in the Old Testament, where someone would gun uh, sackcloth and pour ashes on themselves. Um, so that's what's happening here. And then in verse two, it talks about. It says that he goes to the king's gate. It's an interesting thing as to why didn't he go to just the town square? If you wanted multiple, you know, wanted the attention, why not just go where there's most people? Why did he go to the king's gate? Most um, most scholars believe that they're studying that and understand the culture is because that was a place where he was most likely to be seen by Esther's attendants. The, the king's gate is part of the royal palace. He wanted Esther to see. He needed to get Esther's attention. And so that's where he went and he did that. So that was scene one of just his response. Then we get to Esther's investigation and we learn that she has no idea of the edict and Haman's actions because she, when she heard about Mordecai, she was concerned about Mordecai, not about the plan that Mordecai was of about. She was distressed because only of Mordecai's behavior, and so she sent him clothes to put on. Now this wasn't because uh, she was embarrassed, like oh uncle or cousin, because you know, he was his cousin. Like you know, what are you doing? You know, put on some clothes. You know, get better. It it, it was simply because that if he had regular clothes on, he could then enter the king. He could then come to her in her presence. Remember, if you're in sackcloth and ashes, you couldn't go past that point. So by sending him clothes, she was saying, hey, get dressed, come on, let's talk. We're not told why he refused, which is interesting. Mordecai does some things in this whole story that the the, the author of the story doesn't tell us what is going on. So we don't know why he refused to put on the clothes. So then Esther sent another attendant. She sent another person out there and she said, find out what's going on. Get, get the scoop, so to speak. And so he goes, finds out from Mordecai what's going on. And then the author, as he's writing out, he says, he tells Hethic, and that Mordecai says, you need to show Esther, show her this, explain it to her, and then um, it says that instruct her. The word instruct is not strong enough. The way it was written, the grammar, the syntax, basically says, Almost this is a command she has to do this, um, so this was not just a light suggestion, but he really said that shes esther has to take action here so then we get to the third point, which is esther 's exchange with mordecai and <clears throat> When she's when she's talking about the fact that you know this isn't you know, um, you, know if I, you know if the king doesn't you know stick the sceptre out to you you could die and I haven't been there for thirty days she's not this is not an act of cowardice basically she's saying this is a weak plan this is not a good plan what she's saying is that. <clears throat> I might not even, because of this whole scepter thing, I might not even, I could go there, I might not even get a chance to express what's going on. I might not even have a chance to appeal. And the fact that I haven't been there for 30 days says I don't have much influence on the guy. So first off, this plan is, uh, this has got to be a better plan, because even if I do this, there's no guarantee I'm going to actually get a chance to share. And even if I share, there's a little chance he's probably going to do anything. But then Mordecai responds, and he says... Perhaps you might be right, but you know what? You're in danger either way. You're in danger if you go. You're in danger if you don't do anything because don't think that you're going to be safe in the palace because if you don't do something, we're all going to die. So Esther then says, all right. Let's pray and fast for three days. Uh, which is interesting because the Jews had already been praying and fasting when they first heard about the edict. So many of them are already praying and fasting, but what we see here is a different kind of fast. It's a fast and prayer of intercession. It's you're calling upon God to do something very specific, you're wanting some action to happen. The other thing that's interesting, we know from the previous chapter that what's going on right here is the day before Passover. As far as when the fasting started, Esther is asking all the Jews to violate the law by not observing Passover. By praying and fasting for those three days, they're not participating in the law during Passover. And her idea that she says, "If I perish, I perish," is not hopelessness and despair. It's that courageous determination. "If I perish, I perish. Let's go." That was her attitude in the heart when she was saying that. Esther was an orphaned Jewish girl living in exile who by God's providence became queen and the rescuer of her people. She was sent from being a nobody to a somebody and then back to being a servant in God's greater plan. So as we're looking at this story of Esther, what does it take for us if we want to be a difference maker? What are some things we can observe here in this passage? One, you have to care enough to get involved. You have to care enough to get involved. Now, let's be honest. Self-preservation is a very strong motivation. Um, Most of us will never be faced with a life or death decision like Esther. Okay? And secondly, I I doubt if any of us will ever be called upon to save an entire race of people. All right, so in that context, what... What does that look like for us? See, I have this, I I, I think for most of us, we don't have aspirations to change the world. But most people I talk to love the idea that they can have an effect in their small corner of it. Whether it's their workplace, their neighborhood, their community, something that they can be, have a difference and make that change. So what does that look like for you and me? It means that you might volunteer to help in the nursery every six weeks or so, Not because you like changing someone else's kid's diaper, but because you realize that for 75 minutes on a Sunday morning, some parents might have a chance to come into a worship experience and maybe encounter God in such a way that forever changes the destiny and direction of that family. It might mean that you volunteer to host a small group of middle school kids because you remember some of the challenges of those awkward years. And perhaps you can help a kid avoid some of the hurt and pain that you experience at that age. It means you show up early on a Sunday morning to make coffee and set up refreshments because people tend to engage in a conversation with a cup of coffee in their hand. And perhaps a relationship will be made after a service that will allow the Holy Spirit to bring life to a person. So if you want to be a difference maker, you have to care enough to get involved. Secondly, you have to be motivated to get informed. When Mordecai refused the clothes Esther had sent to him, she she could have responded in a couple of ways. She could have said, that old guy is such an idiot. You know, if he's going to act that way, then he'll just have to suffer the consequences. Or she could have said, I'm the queen. If he's not coming to me, tough on him. But she didn't. She didn't do any of those. Instead, she made a second attempt to try to find out what was going on in, with Naaman and why he was behaving this way. That second attempt saved her life and saved the life of all the Jews living in Persia at that time. Not too long ago, I was uh, waiting uh, for someone to get back to me. We are working on, on something and they were getting back to me on a project. Weeks went by. <clears throat> And I started to find myself getting a little irritated. Um, I know some of you find that hard to imagine, but uh, (laughs) I I went to the person, I said, hey, you know, my understanding that, you know, you were working on this and you were going to get back to me so that we could kind of get through this, the fact that you haven't, I'm kind of interpreting it this way. Is this, am I reading this correctly? And the response was, absolutely not. So based upon our last conversation, I thought you were going to do this and you were going to get back to me. And so what I discovered is that both of us were sitting there looking at each other, waiting for the next person to move. So we were able to fix that up quickly and move on. But here's the thing. I could have continued to sit there and stew and wait, speculating on why they aren't acting and doing what I thought they were supposed to do. In my mind, creating all kinds of crazy scenarios, attributing motivation and why they were doing certain things that didn't even exist. I'm convinced that too many times we cause ourselves more problems because we don't make the time Or the effort to get more information. We make assumptions. And because of that, we come to a wrong conclusion. And sometimes that leads to us making bad decisions. So you have to be motivated to get informed. Number three, you have to have courage to take action. If you're familiar with the rest of the story of Esther, you know that she does go before the king. He does extend the scepter to her. He does listen to her plea. And ironically, Haman ends up being hung on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. But it's important to remember, however, that at this moment in the story where we just read, she has no idea if the plan is going to work. Even so, she was willing to die in the attempt. See, I'm convinced that courage is not the absence of fear courage is being willing to do what we need to do in spite of fear. To be a difference maker, you have to care enough to get involved, you have to be motivated to get informed, you have to have courage to take action, and lastly, you have to engage God in the endeavor. (coughs) This story takes an interesting twist. right after the passage we just read, as you know, they're fasting, and then on the third day of the fast, Esther goes before the king. And he receives her, he asks her what she wants, and she, her response is, come to a dinner later today. Oh, and bring Haman with you. We're not told why. Okay, the king's all excited and he says, "Go get Haman, let's go. We're going to go go have this dinner." And so they show up and the king says throughout the dinner, "Hey, what is it you want? You know, what's what you know, ask me anything of up to half my kingdom," which is kind of a cultural thing. It wasn't meant to be taken literally, but it was basically saying, "Hey, I'm receptive to what you have." And then she says, "If you really mean what you're saying, if you really want to do what I'm asking you to do and you're committed to doing that, come to my dinner tomorrow. And so she invites him to a second dinner. Here's what's odd. Nobody knows why she did that, a second dinner. There's nothing in the text, all the historians, everything I've ever read on this situation, no one can say why she did this. It just doesn't make any sense. There's no reasonable explanation for that. And yet... Here's the thing where it gets interesting for me. During that night, so they've had their first dinner. It's now that night before the second dinner. The king, we're told that the king can't sleep. He has insomnia. And so like most of us, he has someone go get something to read that might help him get to sleep. And it's historical records of his kingdom, of what's happened. Whoever was reading to him pulls out an account of when Mordecai informed and, and revealed the people who were trying to assassinate him years prior. And so the king asks, huh, did we ever do anything nice for Mordecai? Well, no. So all of a sudden, this whole conversation changes in the king's mind about Mordecai and the Jewish people because he's just remembered what's just happened <clears throat> or what happened a few years prior. <clears throat> that one day delay reshaped that whole conversation. The entire conversation with the king was changed because of that delay, because of what the king encountered. He had insomnia that night, and they just happened to pull that scroll out and read that account. So where did she get the idea to have that second banquet? I think it came to her during her time of prayer and fasting before God. There was no reasonable explanation for it. I think it was just something that she felt prompted to do and then took that action. As I said before, we are a people who believe God is still involved in his creation. We can engage him to receive guidance. We can appeal to him to intervene in life's affairs. We can trust his love for us. will never, ever go away. So two thoughts. So I want to leave you with today. Not until we believe one person can make a difference will we be willing to risk. You have to believe that what you're doing matters. There's no guarantee, but there's that hope and expectation that something might be different because you took an a <coughs> step of action. Second thought, only when we move from the safe harbor of theory to the risky world of reality do we really make a difference essentially saying, good intentions don't count. You've got to move from, yeah, I'm thinking about this, I have this idea, to actually taking that step and putting something into action. God is not so much interested in our ability as he is our availability. As we're willing to embrace his direction, he does the improbable and the impossible throughout each of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for Esther and Mordecai and this story, and Father, how you worked through very natural circumstances. You worked through a, an ungodly government, an ungodly king, uh, to accomplish your purposes. Lord, you thwarted the plans of, of Haman so that your purposes would be accomplished. Lord, you guided and directed Mordecai and Esther and, and helped them to make tough decisions and to take steps of action that required great courage. Father, it's, a, it's an example for us to recognize that. Um, This is how you want us to behave. We can't always have the same outcome, but Father, we can always have that same type of experience and encounter with you. So my prayer, Father, this day is that if, uh, and as Dave has shared earlier, if there's a dream, if there's something that you've planted in our hearts, Father, may this this time have been water on that that would cause it to grow and father if the the dream has gone dim may it, lord may it become bright again Father, if it needs, uh, if it required this step of action, Lord, may today be that infusion of courage that we need. Father, my desire is that we become engaged with you in our lives. And we're not just passive observers. But, Father, we're conscious of what our role is in that. And so, Father, towards that end, we commit ourselves to your plans and your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.